0: you're listening to the bible teachings of reality church stockton for more info please visit our website at realitystockton.com one sabbath he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way his disciples began to pluck heads of grain as the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, and grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Okay, so I'm sure you're familiar, at least partially with the story of the parting of the Red Sea, found in the book of Exodus. In fact, some Jewish traditions hold that the parting of the Red Sea was the greatest miracle that was ever performed. Contemporary rabbi named Lawrence Kushner retells uh, the story of one midrash. A midrash is a sort of commentary or interpretive writing on the Hebrew scriptures. And he retells a a midrash that mentions two Israelites named Reuven and Shimon, who had a very unique experience of crossing the Red Sea. And it goes like this. Apparently, the bottom of the sea, though safe to walk on, was not completely dry, but a little muddy, like a beach at low tide. So Reuben stepped into it, and frustrated, he said, what is this muck? Shimon also scowled, and he said, there's mud all over the place. Reuben replied, this is just like the mud in Egypt. Mud there, mud here. And so they went on back and forth as they crossed the Red Sea, grumbling all the way across the bottom of the sea. And here's how the story concludes. For Reuben and Shimon, the miracle never happened. They missed it. And because they never once looked up, they never understood why everyone on the distant shore was singing songs of praise. Because they never looked up, they didn't understand why everyone was celebrating. There seems to be a very similar contrast occurring here in Mark and in previous portions of Mark. Previously, we read that Jesus forgives and heals a paralytic man, and everyone is astonished and amazed, and they're glorifying God, yet Mark records that the religious scribes sit there grumbling in their hearts, saying, this is blasphemy. Later on, Jesus invites a tax collector, an outcast to come and follow him. And he invites many outcasts and sinners and tax collectors to gather around and feast with Jesus and to celebrate, which celebrating in a broken world is a miracle, by the way. And yet the Pharisees and the religious leaders are grumbling once again. Why is he eating with sinners? And why is he eating with tax collectors? And why are we fasting? And they are feasting and on and on and on. And here again today on the Sabbath day when a man with a withered hand is restored the miracle is missed again. For these religious leaders, just like Reuben and just like Shimon, the miracle never happened because they never once looked up. They never understood why everyone was singing songs of praise. They never understood why everyone was celebrating. Now, don't get me wrong. They were watching, Mark tells us, verse 24, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then again in chapter 3, verse 2, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Why? So that they might accuse him. So they are watching, but they're not seeing. They're watching, but they're not seeing. What's going on here? Well, it seems that their view is being obstructed. Their vision is being obstructed. And what seems to be obstructing their view is a concern for the Sabbath, and specifically, specific rules concerning how to remember the Sabbath. This seems to be the central issue that binds these two stories together. So we're going to look at this topic of the Sabbath this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at it in three movements, the the vision of the Sabbath, the distortion of the Sabbath, and finally, the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's look first at the, the vision of the Sabbath. Now, within these two stories, both centering upon the issue of Sabbath, Jesus reiterates the vision as to why Sabbath even exists, and then he displays it. He demonstrates it to the surrounding people. Verse 27, and he said to them, here comes the vision, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So here's why Sabbath exists, for you. Not you, for the Sabbath. And then later on in the synagogue, he tells a man to stretch out his withered hand. And Mark records in verse five, and his hand was restored. And so he demonstrates really the heart of Sabbath in restoring this man. So what does this show us as we kind of gather around these two sections this morning? What it shows us is Sabbath is to be a blessing, not a burden, and that it's restorative rather than repressive. Sabbath is a blessing, not a burden on our shoulders, and it is to bring restoration, not repression. Now, to understand this idea, it's important to travel back through the biblical narrative all the way back to the story of Exodus, where God's people were delivered from bondage and slavery. In fact, the Bible tells us that for hundreds of years, God's people were expected to work tirelessly in Egypt with a grueling taskmaster breathing down their neck ready to crack the whip the moment that they stopped working. Now, although their circumstance was very different than ours, they, like us, had been conditioned to fear the consequences of what would happen if they simply stopped. To fear the consequence of what would happen if I just stopped working. What would the fallout be if I just rest for a moment? They, like many of us, were fearful to catch their breath. They, like many of us, were deeply enslaved. And so God sends a deliverer to break the people free from slavery and bondage and to lead them toward freedom in the promised land. Anyone remember that guy's name? Moses. So God sends a deliverer, he hears the outcry of the people, moved with compassion, he sends a deliverer to set them free from bondage and slavery and bring them into a broad land, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And what we need to remember as we're looking at the Exodus is that the movement of Exodus was a movement of freedom. Exodus was a movement of freedom. And so along this journey, as God's drawing them out and bringing them in, God gave his people a set of commands that would reinforce that freedom and set them apart as God's covenant people. Anyone remember what those are called? The Ten Commandments. And contained within the Ten Commandments was the law of the Sabbath, where we are introduced to really this concept most explicitly. Now, we have a an earlier indication in the creation account that God rested, but this is where it really appears in explicit form. Look at me in Exodus 20, verses eight through 11. The Lord says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, not, not even your livestock or the sojourner who is with you within your gates. No one, no one under your care does work. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in it, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So this is where we're introduced to really this concept of the Sabbath as an instruction from the Lord. But what we need to remember is that the movement of Exodus is a movement of what? Freedom. The movement of Exodus is a movement of freedom. And so what this tells us is this was not an act of oppression on God's part. This was an act of liberation. Serving Pharaoh is enslaving. Serving Pharaoh is about bondage. Serving Pharaoh is about working out of fear serving Yahweh, serving the covenant-keeping God, is about liberation. Enslavement, freedom. Bondage, liberation. And so it was vital that God's people understood the difference between what it means to have Pharaoh as a master and what it means to serve God. In fact, listen to how God frames the Ten Commandments. See, we think when we think the Ten Commandments, we think immediately, though thou shalt and thou shalt not. But actually, the beginning of the Ten Commandments begin like this. And God spoke all these words, saying, quote, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. I am your liberator, I am your deliverer. I am setting you free. What I'm going to say, what I'm going to do, it all has the goal of setting you free. But then the question is, why would, they, why would God command the Sabbath now in the story? Why would God command the Sabbath at this point in the Exodus story? Because when the 10 commandments are given, they were technically free. On the day of the crossing of the Red Sea, as you remember the story, the waves crashed in and buried Pharaoh and his army. There they sit now to to this day in their watery grave. Pharaoh is dead. The threat is gone. Pharaoh's threats have ceased. Why now? Why the command to Sabbath now? Apparently, while Pharaoh had died, the imprint that he left on God's people lived on. So his physical grip had been released, but he still had a grip on their hearts. Even though he was dead in his watery grave, he still had a grip on their hearts and he still had a grip on their minds. See, they, like the believer today, have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness, but the mindset of bondage still remained. Like the believer today, they were set free from the slavery, but the the mindset of bondage was still there. Like our world today, that grind was embedded deep into their lives. That grind was embedded deep into their families and deep into their culture. And even sadly, that grind was embedded deep into their religious practices. That that mindset that I have to work, I've got to produce. I'm a commodity that will be discarded if I don't meet my quota. I got to go, I got to do, I got to make, I got to make stuff happen, I got to work. All I do is work, 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 work. Okay, two of you got that one, all right. So God is saying, God is so clearly saying, this is not how it works anymore. This is not how it works anymore. You are my beloved people. For freedom, I've set you free. I stepped into your world. I reach down into your life. I reach down into your community to liberate you. For freedom, I've set you free. You are going to have to get out of that mindset of grind, grind, grind. You are going to have to rest your way out of that enslaved way of living. That that grind is so deeply embedded into our souls and so deeply embedded into our minds and hearts and bodies that God's means to delivering us is rest rest. The Guardian and, and other few uh, news outlets have published multiple art- articles over the last couple of years exposing a sort of cancer that is spreading in the Silicon Valley where tech owners, tech companies, tech employees are essentially forgoing meals and sleep in order to work. And in fact, some are working up to 22 hours a day, seven days a week, they're not eating, they're losing the relationships, Uh, they're not sleeping, all in order to optimize their job performance. People are are skipping out on so much of life, not resting, not giving themselves even time to eat and proper self-care, all to optimize their their, their job performance. Now, a trend that's actually been occurring over the last 30 or 40 years in Japan is actually, it's a word, karoshi, which means death by work. And it's this concept where people, are so enslaved to work that people are are having strokes and heart attacks in their 30s, are dying of starvation, being expected to work uh, 70 and 80 and 90 and sometimes over 100 hours per week in order to keep up the grind and people are literally dying. And now we're beginning to see that appear in our own nation as well. And what we're seeing is we're really seeing it prominent in the Silicon Valley and other sort of tech hubs throughout the nations. But uh, throughout the nation, but we may be asking the question, well, what does that have to do with us in the Central Valley? Because the Central Valley has its own sort of way. It's got its own sort of rhythms. We kind of do our own thing in the Central Valley. But what we need to remember is that these are the people that are designing our technology. These are the people that are building the apps that are on the phone that is in your pocket or your purse right now. These are the people that are creating the algorithms that determine what you see online These are the people that are influencing our culture. These are the people that are creating the cute little games that your kids play when you want them to be distracted. These are the people that are coding the programs that your boss uses to track your job productivity. These are the ones that are creating the systems by which your teachers uh, keep track of your scores and your performance, and on and on and on. It is of systemic proportion. Whether we know it or not, it is embedded into our culture. It's embedded into our lives. It's on our front doorstep. It's in our pocket. It's in our lives. God's people may have escaped Pharaoh's grip, but his tyrant voice resounds today. Work, produce, achieve, don't stop, never stop. You can't stop. Don't stop. This is where Sabbath comes in. Walter Brighaman puts it like this, Sabbath is about withdraw from the anxiety system of Pharaoh. The refusal to let one's life be defined by production and consumption and the endless pursuit of private well-being. In our own contemporary context of the rat race of anxiety, the celebration of Sabbath, I love this, is an act of both resistance and alternative. It is resistance because it is the visible insistence that our lives are not defined by production and consumption. When we rest, we say, no, you do not define me. I am not your slave. I do not respond to your whip. I do not respond to your tyrant voice. You guys listening this morning? All right, I need you. I don't respond to that. And it's also the creation of an alternative. See, through Sabbath, God was not just bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery, but he was welcoming them into something new, a new way of life, a promised way of life. And as God introduced the Sabbath to the the children of Israel, he is essentially welcoming them back into the garden paradise, a place that was marked by faithful work and yet joyful, refreshing Rest. And so, as God gives them the gift of Sabbath, Sabbath was to serve as this. Now, picture this with me. Sabbath was to serve as this movable Eden that would travel with the children of Israel wherever they went, so that the children of Israel on a weekly basis could have access to life and joy and fulfillment and rest to shalom. That was quite the rabbit trail, I admit. But stepping back here into the narrative of Mark it's not hard to see that this vision of freedom had been seriously distorted. We see a very different perspective of Sabbath here in Mark. Hungry disciples are seeking refreshment. Like the dudes are just hungry. And they're like, no, 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 no. A man with a withered hand seeks to be restored in the presence of of Jesus, no, 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 So what's happening, what's going wrong? Which leads us into our second point, the distortion of the Sabbath. See, what had been intended to lift burdens had somehow become a burden itself, which is very interesting. A vision of rest had been reduced down to a series of rules. In a desire, and I believe it was a genuine desire to uphold the the law of God that really was about and intended to protect freedom, they inadvertently had submitted to the yoke of bondage. So this is very interesting. They step into a realm that God intended for rest and yet they use that Sabbath to retreat back into an Egypt mindset. Back into an enslaved sort of way of thinking. And the question is how, why? How did they get to this point? Because we read a few hundred years earlier in the times of the prophet, it seems like many of the people in the nation were disregarding the Sabbath. And now there's this oppressive view of the Sabbath. What happened? Well, it's important to understand the history of this moment. First century Palestine was a very conflicted culture. So there was the obvious influence in Palestine and greater Israel, uh, the, the, the influence of the Hebrew culture. They had the things like temple and synagogues and the Torah and ceremonies and festivals and the Sabbath every week. So there were these deeply embedded cultural things that were distinctly Hebrew within Palestine and the greater Israel, uh, Israel territory. But at the same time, this was now a Roman occupied area. And with this occupation comes a ton of outside influence. Israel being sort of the the bridge between the west and the east, the whole entire western world essentially shows up on their front doorstep. The whole Greco-Roman world now plants its roots in Israel. And in a lot of ways, the the Greco-Roman world was very contrary uh, to the ways of God's people and the ways of the Hebrew Scriptures. It was just a very different way of living. The Roman occupation brought messed up ideas about power, messed up ideas of corruption and immorality and sexuality and all these sort of things. They just embed themselves into the culture. And so there was this huge concern amongst the religious leaders about how they were going to preserve their identity as God's people. How are we going to remain distinct? We're outnumbered. We're outgunned. Rome, Rome is like on our doorstep. They're influencing our people like crazy. How are we gonna stay God's people? How are we gonna remain distinctly Hebrew? See, what tends to happen when religious freedom is threatened or you know, there's a threat to the stability of a, a prominent religious expression in a people group, what ends up happening is a splintering happens and then polarization occurs. Now, we have illustrations of this in the United States. We have uh, Reformed Judaism, and we have Orthodox Judaism. Uh, maybe a, a little bit more relevant example is that we have right-wing conservative evangelicalism, and we have the more left-wing Protestant mainline Protestant, Protestant, Protestantism. So we have the right-leaning, left-leaning. And typically, the, the left-leaning groups move left to align with the culture in order to survive. And that may be a bit of a generalization, but there's this movement towards assimilation where left-leaning groups sort of lose those lines of distinction and sort of blur with the culture. But then on the, the right-leaning side, that there are the groups that essentially in overcorrection position themselves Against the culture, they, they dig in their heels, they, they put up their walls in order to remain distinct, and they position themselves against culture as sort of a fundamentalist expression. So we have on one side, we have assimilation, and then on the polar opposite side, we have fundamentalism. And we've seen waves of that in our nation as well. The second group, that group of kind of right-leaning fundamentalism, put up our walls, remain distinct group, seems to represent the movement of the Pharisees who we're reading about here in this portion of Mark. They saw themselves as the protectors of the law. They saw themselves as enforcers of national holiness. Think about this for them. They They are saying, we need to remain distinct. We need to remain holy. We are in a time of turmoil. We need to make Israel great again. It wasn't MAGA, it was MIGA. okay? But really, it was a right-leaning group that we need to make Israel great again. We need to secure what used to be. One of the ways they would accomplish this is fencing in the law of God with extra regulations to keep it holy. And over time, they adopted a list of 39 activities that were forbidden on the Sabbath. 39 things that you needed to remember to not do on the Sabbath day and one of those things was reaping grain. Now it's important to note that as we're looking at the story that when we see Jesus' disciples picking the heads of grain, they aren't, they, these disciples are not breaking the moral law of God. Jesus Would never lead his disciples to break god's moral law jesus isn't saying hey guys i'm the lord of the sabbath so you should go and like walk out on your spouses and murder people let's break the law today they're not breaking the moral law instead they are contradicting the religious tradition and they're contradicting the ceremonial tradition which over time had been elevated to a similar place of the law over time these traditions have been elevated to the place of obedience to god so I'm going to pause in this moment of the story and I'm going to try to connect this with a couple warnings for us this morning because we're probably thinking this story is so far removed from my life. I have never walked through a grain field picking grain on a Sunday or Saturday and no religious little snooty religious person has ever told me that I'm doing something wrong. So what does this have to do with my life? How do we connect? Well, three warnings for us as the church. The first is this. We too can elevate tradition to the place of ultimate where when we see someone who is not aligning with our own religious ideals, it's as if they are being disobedient to God. You're not conforming to our denominational ties. You're not conforming to the way that we do things around here. So you must be in disobedience to God. We're disregarding cultural or denominational ideals as if they are disregarding God. We need to remember it is not the same thing. The second warning is this. When devotion to a principle overshadows our concern for people, it turns toxic real quick. What we're reading of right here is an extremely toxic religious environment. They are forbidding someone from being healed because it breaks their tradition to do so on the Sabbath. Dude is trying to get healed and they're like, no, 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 we don't do things like that around here. We don't do things like that around here at Reality. We don't express ourselves like that. No, 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 no. Blaise Pascal once said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it for religious conviction. I'll just let that one sit. Third warning is this, please listen. I'm gonna try to nuance this as best as possible. The most conservative stance is not always the godliest. All right, we know who the liberals are. (laughs) Just kidding. I'll say it again, the most conservative stance is not always the godliest. Conservative stances can be just as damaging as the liberal ones, if not more. See, we're, we're evangelicals, so we lean right. That's our bent, we lean right. Right is safe, left is dangerous. But Jesus does this weird thing. He doesn't lean right or he doesn't lean left. He kind of breaks the categories open. He doesn't vote Republican and he doesn't vote Democratic. He's a libertarian. <laughs> he is a libertarian, I did, I did read that somewhere. You guys are messing this point up. This was supposed to be a warning. <laughs> Jesus is too conservative for liberals and too liberal for conservatives. He's always gonna be. In fact, to kind of illustrate this point that the most conservative stance isn't always the godliest, let's think about this. Who is now beginning to plot Jesus's murder? Who just walked away from this scene and began the first explicit mention of Jesus's death? So Jesus challenges their distorted view. Verses 25 through 26. And he said to them, have you never read that da- what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but priests to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. So what's the point of bringing this story up here uh, from the Old Testament? Well, The idea is that in the instance of King David going into the house of God, eating the showbread, giving it to uh, his his comrades with him, God didn't condemn him for his actions. That technically broke the ceremonial tradition. What David did was totally unconventional. And the reason Jesus, at least I think one of the reasons that Jesus brings this up to religious leaders is to reveal to the scribes that they have been interpreting the law too narrowly and because they are interpreting the law so narrowly they have missed the breath of the scriptures they have missed the heartbeat of the scriptures that they have drifted from the intention of god's law because remember the movement of exodus was a movement of what freedom the movement of scripture is a movement of freedom They had a distorted view of the Sabbath and what they had done is now not just misrepresented God, but they had now weaponized God's word. They turned God's word, God's law, the tradition of God into an actual weapon to hinder from restoration, to hinder from true rest. And so the question is, then what is the accurate way to view Sabbath? If we've seen the vision and we've seen the distortion then what is the accurate way to view the Sabbath? Which leads us into our third and final point, the Lord of the Sabbath. Verses 27 and 28, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not the man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus is essentially saying two things here. The first is this, he is affirming that the Sabbath is a gift from God. Friend, you need rest, You need rest. You are, like, tired. (laughs) You are burdened. You are grinding hard. You live in a culture that is not going to cease. You live in a culture that's not going to be like, hey, you know what? You need today off. Take today off. You need rest. We need regular, consistent days rest. My brother David taught on that this last week during our midweek. In a world that uses and dehumanizes people as cogs and machines, we need rest to be human again. To be reminded before we're a human doing, God made us human beings. There's an article in The Atlantic published, I think it was just a couple weeks ago, and it was titled this, Workism is Making Americans Miserable. And they said work has morphed into a kind of religion, promising identity and transcendence and community. And they said, let's call it workism. Workism. And they said that the decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new worship expressions. This is from The Atlantic, I remind you. They say some people worship beauty, some people uh, worship political identities, and others worship their children. We're going to get to that in a couple weeks. Uh, But everyone worships something, they say. Pretty insightful. And they say, workism is among the most potent of the new religions that are competing for congregants. And then listen to what they say. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And the more belief that any, I'm sorry, and the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. In other words, this approach as we, place and and tether our work to our identity and tether our work to our life's purpose. When we do this, it comes with a demand for more and more and more and more. It always demands more. It's making Americans miserable. Never has it been more important to rest as an act of defiance, as an act of resistance and say, I am not the sum total of my production. I am not your slave. I am a beloved child of God. I am not defined by my work. Work does not own me. Work does not own me. I'm not your slave, not your errand boy. When we take dedicated days of rest, we are saying, we are actually declaring with our lives, I am not driven by success. I'm no longer driven by the need to prove myself I'm no longer driven by the fear of stopping. I'm no longer driven by that idol of financial security. I am no longer driven by the whip, but I am driven by the unfailing love of God and the confidence that he is my provider. I'm not your slave. I'm a child of God. When I rest, I am making a declaration with my life that when I put my work down, God continues to hold me. When I, like Atlas, roll that big old globe off my shoulders, God holds the whole world in his hands. When I stop, God does not slumber. When I take my holy nap, Jesus is awake. The Christian says, I could lose my job tomorrow, but I will never lose my place in the household of God. The Christian says, Pharaoh, if you wanna fire me for resting, go ahead but I'm safe within the grip of God's grace. So the question is, how are we able to rest like that? How are we able to experience deep rest? Because I think that that's what we need. You don't need another occasion. You don't don't need just to figure out, to carve out a little bit of me time. We need deep rest. We need deep rest, deep in our souls. And the way that we experience deep rest, the kind of rest that God intends for us is by resting in the gospel. You see, through his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus fulfilled all of the requirements and all of the demands of God, including the 10 Commandments, in our place. The gospel tells us that Jesus worked for us so that we could rest in him. Jesus went before us so that we can follow in a trail, in a wake of rest. And so as the world charges on, grinding it out to make themselves something, weary under the weight of proving themselves, God welcomes us into rest by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ and allows us to now enjoy that that movable Eden that now goes beyond just a single day, but now transcends our every day into our eternity that permeates every bit of our being, a forever rest through Jesus Christ. The child of God no longer responds to the voice of the tyrant, work or die. The child of God forever hears the voice of a savior. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. You see, when Jesus says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he affirms, not only affirms the Sabbath, but he goes even further. When Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath, he's not just saying, I affirm it. In essence, he is saying, I fulfill it. Jesus is saying, King David, the ceremonial law, the traditions, the priests, the Sabbath, they all exist to serve, to to reveal something greater that is to come, something eternal, somebody better, and that somebody is me. It is all pointing to me. And that the rest of the Sabbath provides us simply with a foretaste of the forever rest that we receive when we trust Jesus Christ. You ever wonder where we got our name reality? Be honest. All of you. How many of you actually know where it came from? Okay, great. Colossians 2. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day, These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. These are the shadow. Christ is the substance. These are the the sort of beams of glory, but the true substance, the true reality is Jesus Christ. Some historians note the provisions that Michelangelo made in order to successfully paint the Sistine Chapel, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel without the technology that we have today. And Michelangelo would often paint late into the night. But as you can imagine, lighting was an issue. In fact, no matter what he did to try to cast light upon the chapel ceiling and chapel walls, as he stood on the, the scaffolding, his shadow would constantly be cast in front of him on the wall and ultimately obstruct his view. The shadow was always getting in the way, in other words until he brilliantly created, <laughs> this guy was genius, he created a head lantern with a candle that would hold in front of his face and would cause his shadow to be deferred, uh, diverted so that he could see in front of him. The, the, the shadows would be removed, which would allow him to see and paint with precision so, so the shadows would not get in the way. What are we, what are we seeing here in Mark? And, and what can occur in our lives as well? The truth is, sometimes the shadows can obstruct our view. Truth is, we've probably allowed some of the shadows to obstruct our view of the true substance and reality that's found in Jesus Christ. Maybe there are traditions or maybe there are things that are just getting in the way, but we've allowed them to captivate our eyes. We've allowed them to captivate our view. And by doing so, we've distorted our view of Christ and we've distorted our view of church and we've distorted our view of the world. And Jesus today, he's he's inviting us to look past shadows to see past those shadows and to see the true substance that is in Jesus Christ and so what I believe Jesus is doing today is inviting us to look to the Lord of the Sabbath look to his work for you look to his life look to his ministry look to his death look to his resurrection look to his intercession and rest deep Rest deep in Christ. Rest deep, fam. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you.